Hello and welcome to the All Things ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Melvin Bogard. Today we're discussing how ADHD may increase the odds of being overweight and having obesity, dysregulated eating, barriers in the African-American community that may prevent an individual from seeking treatment, and ways to live a healthier and better lifestyle. My guest is Dr. Roberto Olivardia. Welcome. Thank you for having me. First, let's discuss the similarity and difference between overweight and having obesity. How are they similar and how are they different? Sure. So what we're talking about is, you know, a lot of these definitions, um, either by the Center for Disease Control or, or medical associations, is to be, there's a formula known as the body mass index, which is basically an index uh, looking at our weight and our height. And the actual formula is, it's defining a person's weight in kilograms divided by the square of their height in meters, little math uh, for people today. Um, And if your BMI is 25 to 30, you would be considered overweight. If your body mass index is over 30, you would be considered obese. And that is basically sort of by those measures having a higher body fat percentage. Um, so that that's sort of the standard definition of what we refer to when we say the words overweight and obese from a clinical perspective. How prevalent is having obesity in the U.S. and also in the ADHD population? And is having obesity increasing, especially for children? Yes. So obesity is actually quite uh, prevalent that um, even if we look at trends that uh, worldwide obesity has nearly tripled since the mid-1970s. So this is something that not only is is an issue, but is one that uh, we're seeing an upward uh, trend of that, um, according to the CDC, that 39 million children under the age of five are considered overweight or, or obese. Um, according to 2020 data, um, over 340 million children and adolescents ages five to 19 would fit in that category of overweight and obese. Um, so it, it affects a, a large, large number of individuals that even amongst adults, it could be upwards of 40% of people, which, you know, on one hand, people would sort of question and think, well, gosh, is it, you know, that much? But again, these are newer data and newer numbers that if we look 30, 40 years ago uh, was was very different. Uh, So it's definitely something that is common and at the same time is, uh, is an issue. And so how does that sort of relate into the ADHD population? So with ADHD, the people with ADHD definitely carry a much higher risk. And and there's a a number of studies that have looked at the prevalence of obesity in ADHD populations, the higher risk that people with ADHD have for um, and their predispositions for obesity. And there are lots of different factors, really, that when we understand, you know, as we understand ADHD, it can it makes a lot of sense why people with ADHD would be a population at risk. I mean, they, there are these multi-dimensional factors, starting with just neurochemically. We know that the ADHD brain is basically in a dopamine deficit, and 
dopamine being a neurochemical that's implicated in reward. And so foods that tend to be less healthy, foods that are high in sugar, that are high in fat, high in simple carbs, which have more calorie, that are more calorie dense, also can stimulate levels of dopamine in the brain. Um, we also know people with ADHD um, have dysregulations in GABA, which is another neurochemical that's implicated in inhibition. So if we have appropriate levels of GABA, we have a better pause button. And it turns out the ADHD brain has lower levels of GABA. So the part of people that might say, mm, you know, maybe I've eaten too much, I'll stop. ADHD individuals have a harder time with that. Uh, we know genetically there's gene mapping that's looking at mapping certain genes to ADHD, to all different type of, of issues. But there's one in particular known as the DRD4 gene that's been mapped for ADHD and also obesity. They, they find that that same gene is implicated in obesity. So you see this sort of interaction. Um, we know that people with ADHD also have very poor executive functions that to eat healthily, we have to plan our meals. We have to make sure we're shopping um, and getting to the supermarket before we run out of something. We need to start thinking about a meal hours before we cook it. We don't want to think about it at the time we want to be eating it because then it's like, oh, there's too much work. Let me go, you know, fast food. Um, and that could be really overwhelming for people with ADHD. In addition, people with ADHD have poor interoceptive awareness. And what interoceptive awareness is, is basically the ability to be mindful to what's happening internally in the body. And that's true for sleep cues, for going to the bathroom, um, but that includes hunger. So, you know, my, the anecdote I often share is from my own experience is that uh, I remember as a child being at a birthday party Chuck E. Cheese <laughs> birthday party. And my, I love pizza. And my friend's mom said, oh, guys, you know, eat the rest of this pizza. I don't want it to go to waste. And we had eaten plenty, you know. Um, and one of um, my friends were like, oh, no, I'm good. I'm full. And I was like, oh, you didn't like the pizza? And he said, no, I liked it. I'm just full. And I thought, oh, you just didn't like this pizza. And he's looking at me like, what is your problem? I'm just, I'm not hungry. And I tell you, Melvin, in my head, I think back to that. I'm like, it did not even occur to me. Like, I like pizza. It's in front of me. Of course, I'm going to eat it. Like the idea that I would tune into my body to be like, oh, no, I'm actually satisfied was something I had to learn, actually, as, a, as an adult. And that those are the things that are so important for clinicians, for people with ADHD to understand because it could feel very shaming sometimes to people with ADHD when people are looking at them, like, how are you eating so much um, in that way? People with ADHD also tend to eat while doing other things, which to anybody would lead to more dysregulated eating. Watching TV, um, I've, I've had patients that are driving and eating meals, which is so dangerous. Um, and then in addition, Having ADHD, people can be in a hyper-focused zone, let's say, where they're working through something and might not eat for hours. And then once that activity is done, they are hit with this wall of hunger, which can lead to binge eating behaviors. Um, and then all the emotional triggers that anyone could relate to, of stress eating, um, people with ADHD are probably more prone to because people with ADHD have... Uh, higher propensity for emotional dysregulation. It's harder 
for people with ADHD to self-soothe, to ground themselves. So I'll, I have patients who talk about when they're stressed, they eat. Um, but with ADHD, it's also when they're bored that a lot of times food is just this reward. It's just something fun. It's something stimulating. And also happiness can be a trigger. And coming from, I, I work with boys and men with eating disorders. And in the eating disorder community, they there's always this sort of talk about, you know, these negative triggers of anxiety and depression and stress and anger. But with ADHD folks, it could be, I'm in a great mood. So let's keep this party going and keep eating. Um, and so it could really be any sort of emotional state. And then lastly is for a lot of people with ADHD grow up, whether they were diagnosed when they were young or, or not, but it can take a hit on your self-esteem and how you feel about yourself and food can become a way of coping with that. Um, so when you put all of that together, it makes, to me, it makes perfect sense why we would see dysregulated eating, obesity, binge eating behaviors to be more prevalent in the ADHD population. Is obesity influenced by behavior, economics, environment, genetics, or all of the above? Absolutely. So when we're talking about obesity, it's very important that we understand this is not just an issue of someone who's eating too much or not just an issue of they're not exercising enough. That's such a simplistic way that unfortunately, culturally, we look at this issue. It really is a complex number of factors that come together. And, and your question really speaks to that, which is that we also have to look at this issue of obesity and understanding how people, the resources that people have. So if we take food, for example, that we're assuming that everybody has equal access to healthy food, that's not the case. That if you are someone who has limited financial resources, you're not going to buy a $15 kale and Brussels sprout salad that might be healthier, but is a lot of money. It, it makes more economical sense to maybe get let's say something that's fast food that might be high in fat, but to some people that might be their, the only meal they have in that day to sort of carry them forward. So having access to healthy food, having access to information about healthy eating um, in terms of you know, different cultural factors that play into what people are taught about food and, and eating and how important it is to pay attention to that. Um, so economics absolutely plays a part in it in our ability to be physically active. You know, it's in the medical community, there's still a ways to go because it might be easy for a doctor to say, okay, you need to lose weight, just go to the gym. Well, that's assuming you can afford a gym. That's assuming even, or go to a playground. Well, that's assuming you're in a neighborhood that's safe where you even have accessibility to a playground or that it's safe to do those things. So we, we're looking at this from, and then genetically, absolutely, is that the fact is all we are born into this world with a set of genes. And, you know, genetics, sometimes it, it becomes this conversation piece where um, I think people who are not always sympathetic to people who might struggle with obesity to say, oh, they just say it's all in their genes. Well, no, it's not a, it's not an excuse. It's an understanding though, that the truth is, is that body, we all have different bodies and we are all, all are wired differently. So we're all not starting from the same place. And so we are, you know, there's that nature component of our genetics. And then there's the nurture component of 
now how do we eat? What eating habits do we set aside and build into? And um, what, what access do we have to good food, to healthy food, to activity? Um, and, and then also keeping in mind of just behaviorally. I mean, some people, if you're working three jobs, you don't have time to go to the gym. If you're, you know, raising children, it's very hard sometimes. Um, a lot of parents, I'm sure, can relate that, um, you know, they'll feed their kids really well. And but when it comes to their own self-care can go out the window. So I, I always want to encourage that when we're looking even at this topic of obesity, that we're trying to hold all of these factors in mind and understanding that not everyone is coming from the same place. And that's particularly true when we think about different cultural groups and in communities of color and lower socioeconomic, you know, groups that we look at this with compassion at trying to understand how this problem is developed rather than just blaming people for, oh, it's your fault in that kind of way. In general, obesity is much more common within some groups than others. Black women and Hispanic men and women all have obesity rates that are higher than the national average. Why is that? And secondly, is there data that shows the rate of obesity for these groups when ADHD is present? So absolutely, the studies show that um, with non-Hispanic Black adults um, tend to have higher rates of obesity followed by Hispanic adults um, and then white, white Americans. Um, non-Hispanic Asian adults actually have the lowest rates of obesity. And so you definitely see these cultural differences. So that's an, it's an excellent question because even now when we're looking at a topic, it's not the singular thing. We have to really understand the intersectionality of this topic that when we're talking about women, men, communities of color. So we know that part of that disparity speaks to some of those factors that I mentioned before that in uh, communities of color that you know you may not have the same sort of accessibility, um, the same sort of contact or sometimes trust in the medical community. I think a lot of times how the messages of eating healthily and increasing physical activity unfortunately isn't always said with compassion. It's sometimes said in this very judgmental way. And if you have a doctor that's like, yep, you just need to lose 50 pounds or else you're gonna be on taking insulin, uh, which is one of, one of my patients told me recently that that's the doctor just said it that way. And, and the truth is, I from the medical community, they're just looking at this very concretely. Sometimes they're looking at it as, yes, if you, this is the numbers. And if you don't make this number, you're going, you're pre-diabetic right now, you will be diabetic and you'll have to take insulin. But I think we need to advocate sort of for more compassion and how we talk to different groups and particularly in communities of color where there there's a historical validation why there isn't a lot of trust sometimes in in medical community and medical establishments around talking about these kinds of issues that there is a tremendous amount of judgment of discrimination of bias that is very present um, when we when we talk about these groups and particularly with communities of color because people aren't taking into consideration all of these other factors um, involved. That even again, even just the idea of food and sort of, you know, access to to food and and not understanding the historical context of it. Um, You know, I remember I talked to a physician 
couple months ago, and I have a, a client who he's Hispanic and he's overweight. Um, he actually struggled with the binge eating disorder and he grew up in the South and the physician said, you know, he just has to stop eating, you know, all the foods, you know, that he grew up with and um, that are saturated and a lot of fats and, and creams and things like that. And although that might be true, but the idea of understanding that, you know, when he grew up in a very poor family where they had to fatten up their food to just as sustenance, basically. Um, and if you grow up with those kinds of habits, it doesn't mean you can't change them, but it's having an understanding of, oh, okay, that worked in that sense of, of sus some sustenance. And now that I have more accessibility to more healthy food, how do I get that information? Um, what are safe physical, if you're in a neighborhood that it isn't safe to play in the local playground? Um, you know, what are physical activity that people can do in their home um, to do that? Um, you know, how can we, you know, eat healthily without, you know, feeling like we have to eat like Gwyneth Paltrow? Um, you know, like her cookbook, I'll never forget when her cookbook came out. And this woman, it was brilliant. She had a blog and said that she made um, her, the recipes out of Gwyneth Paltrow's cookbook and it cost her $300 a day to get the ingredients <laughs> from Gwyneth Paltrow's cookbook. And I thought that's hilarious. I mean, to me, and I'm not saying that Gwyneth Paltrow shouldn't put out a cookbook, but the idea that, I don't know, if I were Gwyneth Paltrow, I would have to put a disclaimer to say, just to know like this is something that only privileged people will basically <laughs> be able to cook from. So, and at the same time, it doesn't mean that people that, um, you know, in communities of color that eating, you know, foods that could really be detrimental to their health is an inevitability. It's, it's finding that way of speaking to them and educating them, but not in a shameful way, you know, not in a way that's saying, oh, you're doing it all wrong, you know, especially as parents in communities of color who obviously care about their children, um, that if they're being told, oh, you're feeding because we, we are seeing higher rates of obesity. We, I mean, we're seeing the highest rates right now that we've ever seen of obesity in children. And a lot of times, of course, the parents get blamed for that. And rather than, again, the blame, it's understanding, okay, well, let me give you some ideas of sort of inexpensive, healthy meals, um, easy physical activities that can be done in 10, 15 minutes. It doesn't have to be an hour lifting weights, you know, at the gym. Um, and also really understanding just from a longer term perspective too, that it, it's not, I, I've worked with people and sometimes in communities of color who almost feel it's an inevitability because so many of their family members, let's say might be diabetic, that it's just, in their genes and genes are not, we don't want to, to look at um, our genetics as, you know, this predetermined thing, you know, genetics are, it's, you know, they're, they're predisposing factors, but whether they pop out or not really depends on our behaviors and our environment. Um, so it's not, we also don't want people to feel almost fatalistic about it. Like, yep, I'm going to get it anyway. So I might as well, eat, you know, how, how I want to eat. So we want to encourage a good relationship with food. And I think also in communities of color too, that, you know, it, in, certainly I see this in my family that, you know, food and community are very, very tied together. I mean, the idea of culture and, um, and, and I love that. I mean, I grew up with, 
you know, parents, um, you know, my dad's Hispanic, my mom was Brazilian, that where food and parties and eating and like loving food. And um, I mean, I'll, I'll text a picture of a meal and send it to my sister, you know, and like people think that's weird. I'm like, what? It's like a beautiful like meal. Look at this. Like, I mean, there's a passion around food. And I think that's to be celebrated in communities of color that you see sort of just the, the, the pride around food and the and I think that sometimes that gets mistaken as, oh, that uh, being gluttonous in some sense. Um, but we can still love the food and, and be healthy and to have sort of boundaries around that. So to your question also about ADHD, there really aren't studies that, I mean, there are certainly a number of studies that look at ADHD and obesity. There are a number of studies that look at obesity in um, minority populations. I have really not seen studies that have looked at ADHD, obesity, minority populations, and sort of looking at, at that. And I think that that is where more research absolutely has to go. What are some of the common comorbid conditions that result from obesity? Yes. Yeah, so obesity really, you know, even though, again, you, studies show that about 40, 42% of adults are, are overweight or obese. It, it really is responsible for a number of medical problems and medical consequences that uh, we really have to take seriously. So things, uh, being overweight, being obese puts you at higher risk for diabetes, for cardiovascular events, for strokes, certainly high blood pressure, cholesterol, gastrointestinal problems, sleep disorders like sleep apnea that can be associated with higher weight and, and then sleep apnea plus obesity creates even a bigger, you know, issue because now you're not sleeping correctly. Um, many cancers have been implicated with, with obesity. And then psychologically, and I, I treat a lot of people who um, either, even people who don't have clinical eating disorders who may be overweight, but have very poor body image uh, because of that um, depression, anxiety uh, around that. Now, some of that, I the, the problem lies within our culture in that part of that depression and anxiety is because if people are overweight and are discriminated against or judged for that, and that's the cultural issue that we have to address. Um, and at the same time, we all want to feel good about our bodies. We don't have to be, we don't all, we don't have to look like a Calvin Klein model though to, to do that. So there are definitely lots of uh, consequences that, that come along with that. And then, and then that creates sort of even more because then you have these illnesses that need to be managed that you need medical resources for, and uh, sometimes money to afford medications and, and drugs to, to manage them. And it just becomes this really tough cycle. When treating an individual who has obesity and ADHD, which do you treat first, the ADHD symptoms or the obesity? Absolutely both that I think the problem is with ADHD is still vastly clinically underappreciated that I find that, uh, you know, obviously at Chad, we know we're, we're so in the know about this, but it, it's still striking to me how I'll talk to people in just different communities who may know that their patients, let's say have ADHD, but they're like, oh, well, that's what does that have to do with them being overweight? Um, or, you know, they just see it as an academic issue um, or they think, oh, they're not hyper. And, 
And I'm thinking, no, 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 this affects every life domain. And in fact, it's the everyday things of eating and sleeping and things like this that ADHD impacts. So one of the things that I, I, I feel so passionately about in talking about this issue of, of ADHD, and I give talks in communities, you know, eating disorder communities. Um, I talk to physicians who work with obese patients, sleep disorder patients to say, please, please recognize, well, first identify the ADHD if it's there, recognize it and you have to treat it because untreated ADHD will undermine the treatment of any comorbid issue. And studies have shown that, you know, that if you have ADHD that's not being treated, you're going to be less compliant and, and not, and when I say less compliant, not in a oppositional way, but you'll, your executive functioning is just poor to take medications, to use a CPAP, to treat your sleep apnea, to remember to go to the doctor appointment, all of these things, the executive functioning issues, they have to be worked on. And so when I have somebody who has ADHD and they're looking to have healthy weight loss or to manage an, an eating disorder, we're absolutely I would say even first, really looking at the ADHD component, how managed and treated is it? And once that is managed and treated, you see such an elevation in energy, absolutely both, that I think the problem is with ADHD is still vastly clinically underappreciated, that I find that uh, you know, obviously at Chad, we know we're, we're so in the know about this, but it, it's still striking to me how I'll talk to people in just different communities who may know that their patients, let's say, have ADHD, but they're like, oh, well, that's, what does that have to do with them being overweight? Um, or, you know, they just see it as an academic issue, um, or they think, oh, they're not hyper. And and I'm thinking, no, 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 this affects every life domain. And in fact, it's the everyday things of eating and sleeping and things like this that ADHD impacts. So one of the things that I, I, I feel so passionately about in talking about this issue of, of ADHD, and I give talks in communities, you know, eating disorder communities. Um, I talk to physicians who work with obese patients, sleep disorder patients to say, please, please recognize, well, first identify the ADHD if it's there, recognize it and you have to treat it because untreated ADHD will undermine the treatment of any comorbid issue. And studies have shown that, you know, that if you have ADHD that's not being treated, you're going to be less compliant and, and not, and when I say less compliant, not in a oppositional way, but you'll, your executive functioning is just poor to take medications, to use a CPAP, to treat your sleep apnea, to remember to go to the doctor appointment, all of these things, the executive functioning issues, they have to be worked on. And so when I have somebody who has ADHD and they're looking to have healthy weight loss or to manage an, an eating disorder, we're absolutely... I would say even first, really looking at the ADHD component, how managed and treated is it? And once that is managed and treated, you see such an elevation in energy at being able to now treat the other issue. But I, I, I really, my heart goes out to a lot of these individuals that I work with, because if they didn't know that they had ADHD, if it wasn't diagnosed, and in communities of color, 
we still see, you know, there it's sometimes overdiagnosed, sometimes underdiagnosed, and we we there it's still not fine-tuned, um, particularly in, in ethnic minorities, that that if you don't even understand that that's even in the picture, then it's very easy to start thinking, yeah, maybe it's my fault. Maybe I deserve this negative feedback and this stigma and this discrimination. And, and then that only, and if you deal with that by using food as a substance to soothe, it just really kind of works on itself. So the ADHD absolutely, absolutely is going to be, I, I would say probably looked at first um, because I want to know how much traction we can get from really managing and treating the ADHD. And then let's delve into the obesity. Let's delve into the eating issues. Let's talk about the management and treatment of obesity with ADHD in the African-American community. Are there barriers in the community that may prevent an individual from getting help? Absolutely. There are a lot of barriers. And I think at first is we want and need to understand that the work is really on, on our part in the medical community, the psychiatric community, of how to outreach to these communities um, and really outreach again with compassion and with an understanding that there that obesity is a multi-dimensional issue with a lot of different factors and really speaking to that community that you know it's almost like if you think about ADHD in general that how many of us with ADHD have heard oh well just you know get a planner or just do this or just do that that worked for all the neurotypical people and we know with ADHD it doesn't always work that way that once I certainly in my life, you know, if I heard that kind of advice that, you know, from a teacher or whatever that I, I just knew intuitively did not speak to me, I would, it would just be discredited. Like I just discredit that source in a sense. And we have to understand that communities of color have been doing, I mean, that's been historical. I mean, where they're hearing voices that aren't really attuned to where they're at and meeting them where they're at. So that's the job that the medical community, the psychiatric community of having to understand where these people are coming from and how to really attune to them and, and attune to their needs so that there is now trust. Because it's not that um, African-Americans are you know, distrustful and suspicious in that way, that there is a valid foundation for that. And so when we can honor that and understand that to then basically create more trust around that, and then giving, you know, very concrete sort of information of, you know, the, here are foods that are healthy, just psychoeducation about nutrition, basically, and ways that isn't going to break, break, uh, break the bank, like the Gwyneth Paltrow cookbook, um, and, you know, user-friendly ways of engaging in physical activity, celebrating, you know, small wins. I, I don't like to use the word baby steps. I don't like that term, but for lack of a better term, because people know what that means, that to really honor those, what seemingly are small steps, but I see any step as a big step, because it means that that big step, the next one could be an exponentially bigger one and a bigger one. And we know with ADHD treatment, that's the case, that it's a game changer when people are treated for their ADHD as to then how they approach other issues that they're working on. I think the same is going to be true when we sort of look at talking about obesity in communities of color. 
Um, and so giving a lot of information in, in ways and helping them understand too that it's, um, you know, the health implications of it in a way that, again, is always coming from a more um, compassionate view. Having support groups too, I think for parents to have places to talk to other parents about this um, around whether it's everything from exchanging recipe ideas, um, you know, to what can people do to just think about food and develop a relationship to food in, in, in a different kind of way. What would you say to teenagers that are struggling? Absolutely. I think first and foremost is when I work with younger people who are overweight or obese is all, all of the factors that I ran um, you know, by, by you earlier around, this is why having ADHD can make it easier for this to happen is uh, one, to just educate people to have them know, okay, this isn't an issue of willpower, which is another term I, I don't like, um, that this isn't, it's, it's very easy. It's simple. And this is true when I talk about addiction with, you know, people with ADHD, we carry a higher risk of any kind of addictive behavior. It's very easy if you don't have that genetic factor of having an addictive personality. It's so easy to just say, just stop eating, stop drinking, stop smoking, stop. And for someone like myself, who has a very addictive personality, it's like, well, clearly you're not wired the same way that that I am if it's it's just not that easy for people now at the same time I wouldn't say well those are your genes so you know go be in that be you know addicted to whatever it's but it's starting with let's understand why this is more difficult because what we don't want to happen is the spiral of oh I'm weak I have no willpower and so I'm going to now use food as more of a solace and more of a comfort. And now it's only exacerbating the issue. So we start with the education and then concrete tips and tools of encouraging really mindful behavior. So when I'm working with really anybody who is overweight or obese, I don't, I wouldn't say that my work is on about weight loss. That's not sort of how I look at it from my role. It's really around encouraging habits that are likely going to result in healthy weight loss. So we would start with mindful eating. Are you aware of what you're eating? Are you aware of how much you're eating? Uh, if you go to a restaurant, do you know how much fat and calories? I, I tell people, I remember um, there was a sandwich at the Cheesecake Factory that I saw a TV show with Chris Rock. It was a TV show of celebrities' favorite sandwiches. And Chris Rock said, oh, the grilled shrimp and bacon club at Cheesecake Factory is my favorite. And I thought, ooh, that sounds good. When, you know, the next time I was at Cheesecake Factory, I had it. It was really delicious. And then um, Cheesecake Factory never published their nutritional information on their website for a reason. And then I guess it got leaked or something was online. And I saw the fat, the grams of fat in the sandwich. I... I was apoplectic. I could not believe that they could physically even manufacture that much fat into a sandwich. And I thought, oh my gosh, like that's like artery clogging. And granted, it doesn't mean I'll never eat it. I mean, I actually haven't had it since, but because I just didn't find it worth it. But it's not that I wouldn't eat something that even if I find out, however, I might 
have half of the sandwich, or I might eat it a lot less frequently. And the power of that knowledge, most Americans actually do not, are not aware of the nutritional content of their food. And so when we just look it up online, we have that accessibility now that we didn't have pre-internet. But being mindful, how fast do you eat? We know people with ADHD tend to eat faster than people without ADHD. Um, I was definitely a Hoover, um, you know, when I was a kid. And and it wasn't until I was in college that people were like, man, you eat fast. And I'm like, really? Like, because I just, I don't know. I was never, I wasn't even aware of it. So once I became aware of it, I can think, oh, okay, let me eat slower, put my fork down in between bites. And then you end up eating less because your stomach is communicating with your brain by saying, I'm good. I'm satisfied. I don't need to eat anymore. So it's helping that team basically develop habits and not have it be about the number on the scale, because then that can create a whole other problem. You know, that obesity, obesity is not considered a clinical eating disorder, because again, it's multidimensional. However, obesity can lead to eating disorders in the sense that people can start in the attempt of healthy weight loss get obsessive about it. Oh my gosh, I only lost a pound this week. And then they start to starve themselves and then they binge eat and it can create this really dysregulated issue with food, which people with ADHD, we there is a higher prevalence of bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder in ADHD populations. Uh, less and not so much anorexia nervosa, although I have treated people with ADHD and anorexia, but it's, uh, bulimia and binge eating are more common. So concrete things that start to make them more mindful of their eating that have them think, is this worth it? You know, like soda, like I don't drink any soda. Any, I mean, I only drink soda water and black coffee. That's the only thing I drink. And now I'm not saying everybody has to cut out soda, but for me, I got my, like when I have like a good seltzer water that's flavored, that kind of hits the spot in the same way that soda, you know, did for me. Um, it took a little while though to do it, but you know, when I was a kid, I would be, I mean, even though it wasn't allowed in my house, which thanks, you know, to my parents at the time, I wasn't happy with it, but now I'm like, that was a very good decision, <laughs> but it wouldn't stop me from going to my best friend's house and chugging Mountain Dew. Like it was going out of style. Um, but I wouldn't feel good afterwards. And that's the other piece to food is how do you feel after? Do we reflect? And people with ADHD often don't really think and sit with, oh, my stomach feels a little not so good, or they might be having GI issues or gas or acid reflux and, and not connected to, oh, wait a minute, it's I, I did eat a lot, you know, or I ate the kinds of foods that I was eating probably. So that's what I always want to encourage in, in doing this kind of work, especially for teens um, and helping them also just look at the other parts of their self-esteem, you know, that body image is certainly we don't want it to be the dominant part of anybody's self-esteem because that'll get anyone into trouble. Um, however, our body image is part of our self-esteem for a lot of people. We want to feel good about our bodies. We want to feel attractive, especially when you're a teenager and you're hitting puberty. And But it doesn't mean you have to be, you know, for women, this size zero and for men, you know, looking like you're on the cover of men's fitness magazine to feel good about your body. That is so true. Well, before we end, is there anything you'd like to add that I haven't asked? I, I'm grateful that you're all, you know, that you're doing this podcast because I think part of how we start to change the messaging out there is just getting 
the the visibility and and the the message out there, you know, and and not only just with this combination of ADHD and obesity, but looking at it from an intersectional lens of African American individuals, looking at you know men and women, looking at even when we look further divided of African American women and obesity and ADHD and or African American men, and I mean just all of that, um, and also too, you know, body image in one of the things that. Um, you know, in, in the African-American community that a lot of times a larger body is actually more celebrated. So in some ways, you know, one of the, the what's seen as almost a positive is that in the African-American community, you don't see an idealization of, let's say, a size zero woman in the way that you would see in, in Caucasian populations. So that's a plus in that way, that there's definitely more acceptance of larger bodies and in ways that could be seen as appealing and attractive. And, and we want it to also just be healthy as well. And to know that, you know, you can be in a larger body and still be very healthy. And there are people certainly that I treat who have eating disorders who are in quote unquote normal weight ranges who are very unhealthy because of what they're doing to their bodies um, to, to get to that place. So again, we always want to look at this through a lens of health at the end of the day and habits that we're instilling. And we know with ADHD, that can be a little bit more of a challenge, but it's certainly not impossible. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the All Things ADHD podcast from Chad's National Resource Center on ADHD.